Yeah, Jake. Um, so my name is, is Grant Buchanan. In 1066, the son of Cannon, Machanan, came over from Ireland with William of Orange to defeat whoever they were defeating in 1066. From that point on, the Buchanans were people that would sell themselves to the highest bidder to fight, was it King Harold? Okay, to fight, to fight. If the Stuarts were fighting the McDonald's, the Buchanans would go with whoever was paying the most. So much so that we eventually ended up on the land of, of Loch Lomond, on the bonnie banks of Loch Lomond. Beautiful lands. We were given that as part of, the, part of our payment. About four or five generations ago, back in the late 1800s, my great, 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 whatever she was, grandmother, stood on the docks of Port Chalmers, which was the port of the city that I come from. And she thought to herself, New Zealand and Australia are going to hell unless we do something. So she wrote a letter to General Booth, who at the time was on the rise. Of course, the Booths were the Salvation Army and said, I will pay for you to come out. And as a result, Australia and New Zealand have the Salvation Army. All because of my great, great, great-ish grandmother. I didn't get any money because they squandered the next generation. So we're, po we're in poverty. That was, that was Catherine Valpy. If you actually want to read about her, you can read her about her in the annals of the history of the Salvation Army in Australia and New Zealand. And people go, well, that's amazing. But the only reason why I know that is that she's significant to my family. She's significant to my story, and I would never have known that had my mother not repeated that story to me. And when I went to mum's cousin, who himself was a general or a captain or whatever they do in the Salvation Army, he said, yeah, yeah, the book that's just come out actually names her as one of the key reasons why they're here. And I go, that's great. So she's one of these insignificant people that in fact contribute to a significant story that by her action, her desire, her, her willingness, she created something that we benefit from. Whether or not you put down that, you know, the mercenary side of the Buchanans back in 1066 is valuable, it's irrelevant. The fact is that that's my story. I would not be a Buchanan today if McCannon hadn't gone over with whoever he was in 1066 to beat the crap out of the people across the, the, the ditch. What's your story? Who are people in your life or in your past that you would say, actually, when I think back, this person is quite significant in our story. It doesn't have to be someone famous. But just think about what are some of the stories you've heard about people in your past. It could be that they're a total criminal, but as a result of them, the law changed. Or it just could be that they existed, that they were a story told. Have a think about that for a minute. Who is someone that you know from your distant family tree or past that you would say, yep, they have a story to tell. They're a part of my story, and I am who I am, partly because of their decisions, what they did. And then have a chat to the person next to you for a couple of minutes. So um, while, while we could leave it at that and just talk all night, it, it's interesting because some people would say, well, we don't have that. We don't know our past. The, the fact is... There are still significant stories in your life, significant pe people that will be insignificant to others. The fact is, 
as um, that's very loud, isn't it? Um, how did you how did your muddy as hell go? Was it pretty good? Oh, you have scratches. Okay, yeah, yeah. So it's not called tough mutter. It's called tough daughter. No, that's okay. Yeah, just uh, that's very good. But anyway, um, charisma was in a in like a junior tough mutter yesterday in, in Packingham. It was pretty good. But the the fact is, we um, as someone said, and I, I forget the the person who said it. I just used it in a quote before. They said the universe is not made up of atoms. It's made up of stories, and. We often forget that, that these stories matter because they remind us of why we are who we are, not necessarily for the good, but also for the bad. You know, as a result of this, this happened that led to this, and that's why we do what we do. And, or this happened, and that's why we don't do what we do. This is how we've changed. And while we're not going to go through in this series a whole lot of the famous people, even though some of those famous names will come up, we decided that what we'd do is actually recognize that after Jesus, the world wasn't just this narrow, right, we're going to have a single set of understanding. We had a whole lot of people that would, would rise, they'd get born, they'd, they'd, they'd connect with Jesus, they'd connect with God. And then what they'd do is they'd say, in light of how we understand scripture, or in light of we understand the Jesus story, this is who we should be. Sometimes that was a reaction against what was going on, or sometimes it was building on what was going on. The fact is that there's a whole interconnection of different people throughout history that have actually brought a depth of the story of what it means to be a community that follows Jesus, what it means to be faithful to the story that defines us as a community. And so what, over the next few weeks, we're going to have people like Brother Juniper. I've never heard of Brother Juniper. Studied a lot of church history, but Brother Juniper comes up somewhere in Mark's past, and it makes sense because it's a cool character, does something. Who else are we going to look at? Um, Shane Claiborne. Shane Claiborne, a guy in America who, who took the idea of sitting with Saddam Hussein. No. Um, he's been, he's it, a pacifist in Afghanistan. in Afghanistan, yeah. But it was with Saddam, wasn't it? He sat down with or, or Osama bin Laden. Yeah, a few times. Um, who else are we going to look at? We're going to look at Luther and someone else because... Sorry? Zinzendorf, Count Zinzendorf. Phenomenal guy. He um, had a whole movement of, of, um, of Christ followers who actually lived what they believed. Um, Gandhi said that if the world, if Christians actually believed and did what the Bible said that it said, the whole world would be Christian. That was from a non-Christian guy who said, the Bible's significant. Now, Zinzendorf, years before that, had a community that John Wesley, who himself is significant in our story in, in Kaleidoscope, actually was on a ship one day and said, hang on a minute, these people not only talk about this thing called the Bible and talk about God, they believe it and they put their life on the line. Now, if Zinzendorf hadn't been around, what would have happened when Wesley was six weeks with these people on a ship? And I know that for some of you, that's a scary thought, being six weeks on a ship with some weird people. But, you know, that's a significant story. What else are we going to look at? We're going to do Bonhoeffer. Yeah, very significant guy in, in the 20th century. That again, a lot of what Bonhoeffer said community should be about, actually we embrace without even yeah. sort of putting it down. That's who we are. So these, these people actually remind us that you don't have to be 
really rich and famous and politically high up to actually bring change. And in fact, many of these people, their teaching and their ideas weren't embraced at the time because they were weird. They sat outside of what people expected. But because they kept following through on their convictions, they, they brought a shift that eventually changed the direction of what it means to be a Christ follower. So that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks. How it unpacks is going to be a little bit, we're all going to bring our own bias to it. We're going to bring our own stories to it. And I think one of the things that we want you to take home over these next few weeks is not, gee, that was a nice little biography about that person that I'll totally forget about, but what did the person who brings that person to us, what was something they said that goes, actually, yeah, that's, that's who we are, we're grateful for that, or, or that I need to change, I need to change my thinking about it, what it means to be a Christ follower or a community that, that expresses what it means to be Jesus in our communities. Because these insignificant people have significant moments that actually are part of our significance. And for us, it's about, we might not realise it, but in 200 years' time, are people going to look back at your life and my life and go, actually, we're really happy that they did what they did because we are who we are. And that doesn't have to have anything to do with faith or religion. It can just be the fact that you as a parent, you as an adult, uh, if, you, if you're not going to be a parent, can help influence another person. You know, the kids that you teach, you're influencing in such a way that many people might forget who you are, but there'll be some kids that remember it was because of you they are who they are. You see what I mean? It's, it's that whole thing that, you know, Nancy will bring a change to someone and hopefully to everyone, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like to someone that as a result of that, the way that, that Nancy engaged with that person, all of a sudden, bang, they've got a different future than say what others said, you know? So the universe is made up of stories, not atoms, because we're inter, interrelated, we're, we're, we're connected to that network. So we're gonna start with the idea of the, the significant story that we're building on, which was always the right answer. Squirrels? Jesus, that's right, that's right. Yeah, and, and really what it was is, is the whole of church history is, like I said, one response after another or one reaction to a response after another of people that say, hang on a minute, let's go back to the original story, the original person, realizing that Jesus was born in a small town that was probably, you know, it was much smaller than even, even Beaconsfield or wherever you come from. It was just a few families. It was an insignificant little town, obscure village. He grew up in another obscure village that was five kilometers from one of the most major Roman cities that wasn't Jerusalem and Israel. Never traveled more than 200 kilometers in his life. Um, he never, we, that we know of, he didn't write down anything. He wasn't a scribe. Um, he, he picked the wrong people. He picked the weirdos. You know, everyone that everyone else rejected, he embraced. He went against protocols because he said, actually, there's got to be a change because we have got it wrong. And he said some things that he didn't just say them because he thought he was a smart person and they were smart things, but he said some things that he was willing to embrace and live by. You know, and as, as a guy said back in 1901, he said, all of the navies that have ever sailed, the armies that have that have ever marched, the, the kings that have ever, and queens that have ever reigned. You know, the famous people have, never, have not impacted the world as much as this one solitary life. But it's about recognizing that 
every generation has interpreted that message that Jesus brought in a different way. He started with the idea that after John was put in prison, his main message was the kingdom of God is here. But what does it mean that the kingdom of God is here? We know that that story was a story against the narrative of Rome, which was a political story that says Caesar is Lord. In fact, nine, uh, four, five years before Jesus was born, there was a, a writing made of Augustus Caesar and says that since Providence, by her benevolence, has given to us the August one, the great one, Julius Caesar, at the coming of the birth of Julius Caesar, this is the language it used, the coming of the birth of Julius Caesar is for the world good news. The same word used of Jesus. And it says that no one before him and no one after him will ever be able to surpass the greatness of, of this great one. Because this man, August, August by providence's um, gift, is actually for us a saviour of the world. That's what was said of Julius Caesar. At Mark... Mark starts with that. This is the beginning of the good news concerning Jesus, Messiah, who's also the Son of God. Caesar was called Son of God. The difference about Jesus' message was that the kingdom of God looked different to the kingdom of Caesar. And that's the first point that we should actually recognize about the story that we belong to. It's a different story than others want to set up. And of course, the kingdom was, was all this based on, on another thing. Go and tell John, my cousin, what, what do you think when his disciples came to John after John was put in prison and John sort of said, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, not just a naughty boy, right? He said, he's not just a naughty boy, I was hoping someone would pitch in. That, that if Jesus is this Messiah, why isn't Rome, why am I in prison? Why isn't God doing something bigger? Why isn't Rome being overthrown? And so he sent his disciples to, to, to Jesus and said, are you the one we've been waiting for, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus didn't say, here I am, aren't I famous? He said, actually, go back and tell my cousin who should know me, the blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the wretched of the earth, the poor, know that God is on their side. This was the inversion. And you go, if we're talking about kingdom language, Jesus said something else about kingdom language. This is all the backstory to many of the people that we're going to talk about. Elsewhere, he said, actually, let's talk about what God blesses. Can someone read that for me? And I know you're at the back, Sam, so you won't be able to read that. So I'll get someone else to read. You can read it. Go on, say it. Okay. How about you, Levi? You got it? Can you see that? Yeah, go for it. That's Jesus' manifesto for what it means that the kingdom of God is here. These were all things that the kingdom of Caesar or the kingdom of Pharaoh or the kingdom of Trump didn't work by. <laughs> it's on tape, sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. 
This doesn't sound like a kingdom that people are used to. This was Jesus' backstory, and he was bringing out the significance of God's story right from the start. Because God's story had been taken and distorted by Jesus' time. And that's what you've got to keep in mind when we actually talk about all of our people. Often they're dealing with a distortion of what Jesus actually said. either through Chinese whispers or through someone who's more prominent and important saying, no, this is how you shall interpret this. Jesus came and said, actually, I want to show you what the kingdom of God really looks like. You're waiting for the kingdom, but it's not a kingdom that you expect. So what does it mean to embrace this kingdom and walk accordingly? This was Jesus' story. When it came to what Jesus was trying to say, He said, those who are accepted in this kingdom look different. They're not the ones who lord it. They're not the ones who rule over and are therefore blessed by the gods. In fact, the ones that God accepts are those who, when God was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was homeless, you gave me a room. When I was shivering, you gave me clothes. When I was sick, you stopped to visit. When I was in prison, you cared for me. It looks like there you've got a car for me, isn't it? But you cared for me. Those, when did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison? When did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty? What did Jesus say to them? When you did it to the, the least, not the greatest, you did it for me. And so there's this, this sense that maybe the kingdom of God doesn't look like this ritual performance of getting everything right or bringing lots of sacrifices to some place or giving money away to the wealthy just to say, look at me, I'm giving you a gift because that's the kingdom of Caesar. This was a kingdom that actually said something else is different. What does it mean to, to be holy? What does it mean to be in God's story? And Jesus started with this framework that, like I said, has either been embraced or been modified or itself been distorted. So you've got this continual spiral, this movement, this back and forth of a significant moment being understood differently and expressed differently. But that's meant you've had to either have a response to that difference or a reaction to that difference. This is Jesus' backstory. Can someone read that? Thanks. Because this is the... This is the sort of the, this is sort of the final part of Jesus' story before we get into the next part of church history. This is at the end of John and the end of Matthew. Can someone read the first one? Thanks. And what did Jesus do? He did that. He lived that. What does it mean to live the story of Jesus, this insignificant person that transformed the way the world operated? Agape one another as I've agaped you. That's the agape love, the love of service. Serve one another with love in that form of love. Give, to, give yourself to one another in the way that I've given myself to you. By this, you'll show yourself to be my followers. Unfortunately, people have inverted that to the way of Caesar, which is you love Caesar 
and yet you hate your enemy. You love those above you and you give to those above you because in doing so they might give something to you. Yet you go back to Jesus' backstory and he was always looking down and lifting up. And it was honouring those as, as many who were below you as talking about a hierarchical society, a, a structured society. But what about this last one? Because this is the thing that many took to say, this is our, our call, our command. What do we got to do? Okay, you've given us the story, Jesus, but what do we do now? Can we read that last part? It's a long time. It's a flipping long time. Isn't it? So the call, the call has no end. So what does it mean to go out and make disciples? Go out and train people in the way that Jesus did. Because that's the call to, to every single person that wants to actually live their life in allegiance to the story of Jesus. Go and train everyone you meet far and near in this way of life. What I want you to do is just have a chat about that slide and... Talk to one another about how some of those things have either impacted you or even as you've been reading, what are some things that have stood out to you in the way that Eugene Peterson brings that out in the massage version of the Bible. All right, just have a chat. What are some things, have you experienced that agape love from others? Have you struggled? Have you seen that distorted? What about the idea of, of that vocation? What does that mean for you? So just have a chat for a minute. When you see that kind of sacrificial love, it, it, uh, it burns bright, but then it burns out. Yes. And people often get, you know, uh, I guess overwhelmed or yeah. you know, burned out. Or, or sometimes, you know, in an industry setting, you know, the, the feedback from the <coughs> church is like, oh, we, we can't have those people here anymore because... Yeah. They're distracting us from the, the work. And, um, yeah. And, and it was just a, it was a comment around that, and so we were talking about why that happened a little bit. But yeah. yeah, it's um, good. Fantastic. Anyone else want to share what they were talking about? Oh, I was saying, it kind of goes along with what you were saying, that often at the beginning, you focus on the emotional side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 I was saying I had these students the other day, these first year nursing students, and one of them was 18, and I said that there was two weeks, I said to her at the end of the first week, oh, you know, how have you found it? She's like, oh, my nurse preceptor is really mean, and, and my whole aim in my placement is to break her and find the kind of Yeah. Family. And I thought that was so awesome. Like, I learned all this theory about nursing, because that's all she wanted to do. And then at the end of the second week, um, she, I'm like, how, how have your week gone? You know, we're going through all the practical stuff, and she's like, I broke her. <laughs> she's like, Mm. Like, you know, but uh, you know, just the whole love, loving one another, and to me, like the power of love, you know, um, yeah. was just kind of what that first part of it all yeah. about. Not the power of chocolate. No, no we're not no, talking no, about no. that. That helps. that helps, but it's a different form of love. Yeah. Can I say, I was telling Rachel that um, when I first came to faith, I was so sensitive 
and just so loved by the people. I didn't realise when I was appropriate because they never made me feel like that. Yeah, when you weren't wearing a bra and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, underwear. <laughs> <laughs> That's on tape now, yeah, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's right. That's it's right. That's why I could say it. It's, it's interesting because, you, you know, you, you, you hear this, this thing, but this is the word that often people come to when it comes to making disciples, you know, going out and converting the world is the word, words that we use. And you have the Spanish Inquisition. And if you've watched Monty Python, no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. The fact is the Spanish Inquisition was, was a time in, in the church when it went around and enforced people to follow. And that was... That was the love, based on the love command. We're, we're going to force you to love God, which is more in line with the kingdom of Caesar than it is with the kingdom of Jesus. But they said our, our, our call is to go out and make people, because for them, commanders, ruler tells this is what's required. Go out and force these people. So again, it's this it's something that's really positive. And I've, I've given you my version of the kingdom of God, my version of Jesus' gospel. I've left out a whole lot of stuff that is irrelevant to my telling of the story. But that's exactly what happens. It's we, we take on board something and we filter it through our own, our own lenses. There's a lot there that talks about embracing the, the lost, the lonely, the least, the last, which is what we're about. But there's also a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense in that framework. And when it came to the early church, and this is where we're starting proper with the apparently insignificant people that actually have significant stories. And the first one that I want to bring about is actually a guy called uh, Anthony of Egypt. And his framework was, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. Anthony was a very wealthy landowner and it was the heir of a lot of, of, of stuff. He did that. He gave up everything at 20 and then for the next 85 years, lived as a hermit in the desert. Because his job was you go and sell everything and then you go and find God. So the framework for him was, he, he took the second one, which was be in the world, but not of it. How do you escape the passions of the world? You don't live in the cities, you live in the deserts and you find God. And so people used to say, that must be right, because when you live in the city, you know what, what the city's like, don't you? I mean, it's full of people like Collingwood supporters and Footscray and, and stuff like that and, and people from Pakenham and Beaconsfield that you go, oh my goodness, there's no wonder the world's in trouble. And that was the way they looked. So they went, they, they ran away. Now, Anthony was considered the father of what they call the monastic movement. 
And in the time we've got, we don't have a chance to really explore it. But, you know, you, you see in the movies these monks that appear in their, their habits, not their bad habits, but their brown habits, um, you know, with the hoods and, and, and doing all this stuff. They were into a, what they called an ascetic lifestyle. No sex, drugs, rock and roll, whatever, you know. Well, I'm coming to that. I'm coming to that. Anthony, so Anthony, Anthony of Egypt went out. He sold everything. But the thing was, someone said he must have it because look at how long he's stayed in this state. So people would then follow him out into the desert and say, what's, what's the, the, um, the thing that we must do? And he came up with stuff like this. Can um, someone read this, please? Father Anthony, Anthony the, yep. When he told him this, the old man said to him, if you want to be a monk, go into the village, buy some meat, cover your naked body with it, and come here like that. The brother did so, and the dogs and birds tore his flesh. When he came back, the old man asked him whether he had followed his advice. He showed him his wounded body, and St. Anthony said, Anthony said, those who renounce the world but want to keep something for themselves are torn in this way by the demons who make a war on them. And you go, what's this guy on about? <laughs> this is Anthony, the beginning of the monastery. He, he had hundreds and hundreds of devotees that followed him. Because he believed that what Jesus and God had said is don't be part of the world. All of the stuff that it talked about Jesus touching lepers didn't make sense to him. It was secondary to the sense that he had to be holy, perfect, pure, not contaminated by the world. You see, but if we didn't have St. Anthony, we actually wouldn't have the next guy that I'm going to talk about in a minute. Because St. Anthony started a movement of people that said, we've got to separate in order to be devoted to God to then help people understand what it means to live according to the go and make disciples, be, be a Christ follower, right? And as much as Anthony appears a bit of a, at times, and I'll leave you put the expletive in there, his, his, his discipline for 85 years gave people an example to live by, to say, actually, there's something about the character of this man. And we go today and go, that's not very nice sort of stuff. I wouldn't tell you to go down to the butcher. First of all, I wouldn't tell you to get naked in the city. I'm not a hippie. That's Mick and Michelle's job. All right, that's their background. Second of all, I wouldn't tell you to put meat on your body. First of all, I'm off red meat, but that's got nothing to do with it. That's my story. The, the fact is that back then, the, these, were, these were ways that they wanted to embody what it meant to embody the message. Okay? Um, he said this, to say that, but this is, this is the contrast that he also said, to say that God turns away from the sinful is like saying that the sun hides from the blind. In other words, while he demanded discipline of his followers, he also understood something about God, that God isn't in this space outside of the world. So God's actually looking towards it. Anthony just didn't quite nail it when it came to embodying it. Our life and our death, he said, is with our neighbor. If we gain our brother, we have gained God. But if we scandalize our brother, we have sinned against Christ. And so again, this was in the context of his monastic group. But he had something truth about loving your neighbor. Remember, this was a mainly a male pursuit when it came to the early monastic movement. But he was saying something. So you've got on the one hand the strict weirdness, and on this other hand trying to make sense of what 
Jesus said. But like I said, a few people followed him and actually took this whole idea of being in the world, but not often, and, and as Paul says, put off everything that binds you. And you have these two people here. One's called Simon the Great, Simon Stylites the Great, and the Stylites was the, the, the pole that he stayed up. And then there was Simon Stylites the Younger, who followed Simon and imitated him. Now, Simon Stylites said he needed to escape from the world. He, he left, he was much later than Anthony. He left and he wanted to follow in Anthony's footsteps. So he left and went to the space, but people started coming to him. So he sat on top of a stylite, a pole. At first it was only about, you know, yay high, and people kept pulling him off. So much so that by the end of it, he had a 50-foot pole that he used to live on with about a meter square thing. And people used to pass him up food, and they used to come and say, what do we have to do to become pure? And then Simon the Younger came along and says, I can't be as great as Simon the Great, you know, Simon the Elder. So he, he had a slightly lower pole. Now, this is people that are following Anthony to find God. Right? But yet people would come and say, they must know what they're on about. Weird, isn't it, Mark? It's quite crazy. Simon, Simon Stolides is a beautiful, beautiful figure in church. And you go, what's significant about him? It, nothing. It's just funny that people actually follow in that footsteps. But then you come to the... He was up there for months. For, for years. 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 He was up there for about 40 years. Yeah. 30 years. What? They passed it up and, you know. But again, because people would look and say, there's something different. And here's, here's the interesting thing, guys. If you don't... If you don't take time to actually work out the story of someone else and you blindly follow it, you often follow their distortion rather than the truth of what they're trying to find. Anthony was trying to find an embodiment of truth. Those who followed him wanted to embody Anthony, but they didn't themselves search for the truth. And so you get this journey over here. Remember I talked about the good, the bad, and the ugly of people, the fact that sometimes it's a response to a reaction against. However, if we didn't have this, we wouldn't have this guy, Benedict of Nursa, Nicaea is just north of Rome. He was a guy that wanted to actually embrace the truth of selling yourself and giving yourself and devoting yourself to God. And, but he was a far more organized person and he had these group of people that came around him. He said, actually, if I'm going to be responsible for these people's lives, I have to organize them. And so you've now got the rule of St. Benedict, which is recognized among a lot of monastic groups as the most amazing um, set of principles to order communal life around. Okay, His set sense was the first de degree of humility is prompt obedience. If you're truly going to be humble under God's story, you've got to obey. And he said this, this is one of the, the, the things that was said of him. Taking ideas from a number of early monastic writings and likely from his own experience, because he himself had come from quite a significant family, Benedict wrote a rule for his monks, one that is today praised for its balanced approach to monastic life. Besides the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, giving yourself up, right? Um, it stressed communal living, physical labor, common meals, and the avoidance of unnecessary conversation, which Trudy would absolutely love. You know, she says, why can't we have that in our household? But the, the fact is that 
that the rule of St. Benedict was actually to say there's a, there's a meaning in life, there's something in life that we need to do. But it's not in isolation out in the desert, it's actually together in a monastery so that we can actually do something. All of his monasteries had to be self-sufficient, so they weren't drawing on the community for just for general stuff, which some places were. But more than that, as a result of their self-sufficiency, and this is the amazing thing, many monasteries encouraged care of the sick, and that was part of Benedict of Nursia. He should first show them in deeds rather than words that is good and holy. In other words, don't, don't tell me that you obey Christ. Show me that you obey Christ. Don't tell me that you believe in the words of Jesus. Live the words of Jesus, and that will show me that you believe in the words of Jesus. And for Benedict, as much as he wanted his monks to avoid connection with the society by, by living in society, he actually made sure that as a monastery, every monastery was a place where the sick could come and they could find care. Many monasteries encouraged the care of the sick. The rule of the Benedictine monks stated that the care of the sick is to be placed above and before every other duty. That sounds like Jesus. Most had an infirmary for sick monks and a separate hospital for the public. Benedict's monasteries were the first public hospitals. Now do you see the significance of this almost insignificant person that was following this almost insignificant person? as a reaction, both an embracement of, but also a reaction to, or against, um, St. Uh, Anthony's stuff. Um, at least one of the monks would specialise in caring for the sick monks. He would be, keep a herb garden, and many developed a great expert knowledge in all the different types of herbs. He was one of the early pharmaceutical groups. Yes, there was a lot that went on, but caring for the sick. The other thing that Benedict used to do was he realised that well, all these young guys tended to be males, were coming in to the monasteries. So he said, it's not just our job to give them a habit and get them off doing physical labor, but actually to train them. As a result of St. Benedict's approach to life, we have the modern university. When they actually talk about the history of university, they actually trace it all the way back to the early monastic life that saw the duty of these people were to care for the sick and make sure that society was ordered right by God which also included science and, and maths, etc. They were responsible for a lot of the early writings being reproduced. And without these guys, we wouldn't have many of the things that have helped us understand history, not just Christian history, but secular history as well. An insignificant story for many has actually, believe it or not, impacted how we do society today. All is a reaction from one and is a response to another. The stories matter. Each one took the story of Jesus and as a result of both experience and insight and, and call, some of it was revelation, they transformed how they lived that message. So here's the story for us. Here's the challenge for us. What do we do when we hear stories like this? Do we go, yeah, that's irrelevant, that's not for us? Or is there something in even their stories, whether it be the story of Jesus, the story of St. Anthony, the story of Simon Stylites, the story of Benedict, and there would be many other monks I could have bought. Is there something about them that challenge us? And what is that challenge? Is it a challenge to actually maybe simplify life? 
is it a challenge to actually reach out beyond ourselves and realise that while we do need to work on what we believe and what we think, there's something that's a challenge to us to go and do something else. Because their stories have helped set a foundation for who we are today. Significant stories from sometimes insignificant people. But because of them, we are who we are today. So that's where we're going to go for the series. All right? By the way, don't worry about living up poles. It doesn't work today. Yeah, it's too cold down here anyway. So. They do, they do. Fantastic.